Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DuBose, and the reigning magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. Nathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm really happy to be able to discuss Pioneer and Modern and sort of cover the recent events leading up to the RC, as well as the tournament I got the chance to play in Richmond a few weeks ago, and my takeaways just from uh, getting to dive into that format for a few days. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you're underselling yourself a little bit, being able to play in the tournament, uh, but actually win the whole thing. So that's pretty awesome. We have a lot to talk about today. Um, Like you mentioned, we're going to be diving into Pioneer. Uh, For those who don't know yet, this is going to be the format for Season 4 RCQs and then the next regional championship that takes place um, after the one that's already queued up, which in the U.S. will be for Dallas. Um, So these RCQs will be taking place from April 22nd to August 20th. Um, And in this episode, we're going to take a look at the 10 to 15 most popular decks in the Pioneer meta right now, according to data from recent play. And we're going to tell you why you'd want to consider playing them, as well as giving some overarching advice for the format, deck selection, and being a better player in Pioneer. Uh, We'll also be talking about Nathan's recent win at the 20k event at SEG Richmond, which is modern. Uh, We'll talk about his deck of choice, Team of Rhinos, and break down the event. Uh, But first, we do want to give a shout out to all of those who took the time to leave a review as well as our new patrons. Uh, So thanks so much to everyone. Um, We appreciate the feedback and support on the first episode. It was great to get that out there and hear your thoughts on it. Uh, Shout outs to both Deluge of Sorts and Gianon for their five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to our 24 new followers on Spotify and all of the many listeners who took the time to rate us on other platforms and listen to that first episode. And a big shout out to our newest patron, Brad Persuto. We truly appreciate the support. Um, And if you'd like to support the show, listeners, uh, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or by signing up for our Patreon. And speaking of, uh, we are in the process of revamping the tiers and rewards for our Patreon. um, So you can help keep the lights on here at the show for as little as a dollar a month uh, for the same low, low price as a playset of Blood Tithe Harvesters. You can support several hours of the best competitive Magic the Gathering content around. So if you want to check out our Patreon, the link is in the show notes, and we would very much appreciate that. But if all you can do is support the show by leaving a review, five-star rating, or just listening, we appreciate that as well. All right, so uh, today we're going to start off by talking about um, the SEG Richmond event that, Nathan, you had a chance to compete in. Um, This is a pretty big event, uh, 264 players, and um, I'll open the floor to you, and you can kind of tell us about your experience with it. Yeah, thanks, Cody. I mean, a big part of the uh, current modern landscape is that I felt going into this SEG event, it wasn't something that I was super duper uh, certain I was even going to attend until the last few days. I I felt like there was a few good options, um, primarily a good friend of mine, uh, Oliver Tomiko, and my other great friend, Isaac Bullwinkle, who you might know as the Magic Online Rhinos King these days um, have been pioneering that deck and doing really, really well. Um, Isaac actually won both modern challenges on the weekend of SEG Richmond and won both of them with Rhinos. So before the tournament- That's super impressive, winning both of them in the same weekend. Truly, truly incredible. And so he is someone that took the stock Rhinos list 
and took uh, a lot of time to innovate on it. And that's not something we see a ton from StockDex in modern. One big part of this is that he identified one card that was really, really important for the shell to function better was Merktide Regent. And this contrasts with the previous versions of the deck, which maximized on Brazen Borrower and Fury. And so he took those uh, two, two slots from each of them. He cut two Brazen Borrowers and two Furies and added uh, two Merktide Regents, a Become Immense, and I believe a copy of Dead Gone. Um, so maximizing on those spells, but the general theory on it is that uh, the Rhinos deck currently doesn't really take advantage of its graveyard particularly well, and Delve is just an excess resource that you can use when your graveyard is full. And the other important part of it is that you want some diversity in threats. And so... For example, one thing that comes up pretty consistently in the Rhinos deck is you can produce two 4-4 Rhinos on the ground, the ground gets gummed up, you have no way of breaking through, and you eventually lose to your opponent just playing a fair game where they make a wide board on the ground. Um, Contrast this with Murktide Regent, which luckily for you uh, can provide good counterplay versus Unholy Heat when you can make it into a 7-7 and flies over. It makes it so... At least from the Rhinos deck, you have an angle that lets you diversify your threats. It lets you break through from boards that get clogged up. And we already know that Murktide Regent is one of the premier threats in the format, given the success of of uh, of Murktide itself. So yeah, definitely, I think that's a super interesting inclusion um, in just being able to prolong the game, get into that that late right. stage pass. You know, when you said gumming up the board on the ground, having something to be able to go over the top is super important to go with that early explosive starts that you can get. I totally agree. And that was kind of what piqued my interest in playing the deck. I felt that creativity was the other deck that I was interested in playing. However, I didn't really have a good version of the deck and it was pretty hard to develop. Um, Looking at the event itself, actually two of the top four players played the exact same 75 of creativity where they found four change the equations from the new set. Uh, bear in mind, this was the first day it was legal. And so they put four copies of that in their sideboard as a generally really strong sideboard card against blood moon decks, including rhinos. And it seems like that was one of the things that made them so successful this weekend. Uh, so I think that creativity was an awesome choice for the weekend, but I decided that the new innovations in rhinos in addition to having really good high value resources to discuss a list with beforehand made it a really good choice. Yeah. And uh, you ended up actually playing against creativity in the last two rounds, correct? Yeah. So So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to ask, you know, how do you feel like you matched up specifically against it in the, in the version um, with the new counter spell from March and machine? Yeah. It's a really good question. In the Swiss rounds of the tournament, I started the first day six and two. And my two losses were to two creativity players, the same creativity players, uh, Daryl Ayers and Pete Ingram, who built their deck with four change the equation in it. And so I was actually surprised going into the tournament. I was told that creativity was supposedly one of your better matchups. And the creativity players that I talked to all told me that they really didn't like playing against Rhinos. So when I played it into this version, when I paired into them, I found that their cyborg plan was really, really hard to combat. Game one, you are definitely a favorite, but there's still a four to fairy time raveler deck. And I 
really got crushed in the two matches we played in the Swiss beforehand. Um, that that part was a little surprising to me, but the plan they had with the four changes coupled with they had two Curse of Silences, which could name uh, Rhinos and make it a five-mana card, or just name another spell in a pinch, as well as Veil of Summers and their usual four-main deck spell, Pierce and Teferi, meant that they had a pretty diverse sideboard plan. Um, it looks like they were taking out a lot of removal, and that was super successful for them. Um, a few other things to note about that matchup and the Rhinos list that I played. There are four main deck disputes in the Rhinos deck that I played, and that's another innovation that Oliver Tomiko and Isaac brought. Um, the The main thing about Mystical Dispute is supposedly it is a way of beating the scariest cards against you. Like we already mentioned, Teferi is the scariest one, just not letting you cascade. And in addition to that, casting it as a three-mana card in this deck is quite realistic because you're often passing with Violent Outburst for their turn. You often want to protect your Rhinos. So as a turn four play, you can cast either Shardless Agent or Violent Outburst with the speed up and beat interaction. And versus two specific cards, which are Ledger Shredder, and Murktide Regent, having Dispute lets you have way really cheap ways of interacting with otherwise troublesome permanents. Um, I also wanted to spend a minute just talking about the dynamic of Ledger Shredder and, and hearing your thoughts too, Cody, because what I found was it was surprisingly one of the best threats against the Rhinos deck, and I didn't really learn this until I was midway through the tournament, where I found out that hands that couldn't beat Ledger Shredder on the draw were really tricky, and yeah. so not having the disputes was a huge issue there just because they can outsize rhinos. They make all the cascade spells trigger them and they smooth out draws in a way that just means that they're more consistent going into the late game. Yeah, it's really one of those just totally unassuming cards in the matchup that you're not super worried about right off the bat. And then you cascade into it and suddenly now these 4-4 rhinos are not profitably attacking into it. So that's definitely a threat. Um, every time that I have picked up Rhinos and, and played it, um, Ledger Shredder, I've noticed is definitely one of the harder cards to beat, especially out of um, lists like Murktide that, you know, if you can kind of get under them earlier, it, you usually have a better chance. But if they have a, a Shredder, it definitely complicates things. So um, seeing the four main deck Mystical Disputes um, popping up recently is definitely something I've been a fan of for sure. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, other random notes on Rhinos and just how the deck is structured right now. I feel that you get to shift your game plans a little bit with this version, and that's also what makes Mystical Dispute really strong. Previously, you're operating under this dynamic where you have to jam your Rhinos as soon as you can at the first possible opportunity. Um, and sometimes you draw Force of Negation and you can back it up and fight on their turn when you draw Violent Outburst. And other times, well you get your Rhinos countered and you can't really play the game that well because your deck doesn't really have alternative plans. And so it's not only the mystical disputes that pull their weight in um, shifting your role and letting you play a longer game, but that coupled with the Murktide Regents allows you to have this more dynamic plan that you previously didn't have access to. Yeah, I think just swapping those few cards totally changes the way you can play the deck and it's super interesting seeing you know how such small changes can really impact your overall play pattern and 
totally changed the dynamic of how you can fight against the meta. Um, which speaking of, actually, it was sort of a an interesting meta at the tournament. I wanted to get your thoughts about that. Um, at the top, we had Merc Titan, five color creativity, both around 9.5% of the share with 25 decks apiece. Um, Merc Titan had a 55.7% win rate, um, which is definitely on the high end compared to its usual. Um, and then we also had um, Burn and then Rhinos, Titan, and Blue White, Hammer, and Scam all had four to seven percent of the meta share each. Um, so seeing Burn and Titan both in there is interesting. Uh, how did your like tournament path look? And did you play against anything you didn't expect to play against? How did it feel? Did it feel like the meta was was different than usual? Yeah. So I didn't actually experience a particularly odd uh, representation of matchups because I played against rhinos to start the day and the other matchups were i played against two creativity i played against uh, murktide regent three times and i think that the weirdest thing that i played against throughout the whole tournament was a copy of hardened scales in the top eight of the tournament which looked pretty cool it was just this um this bant hardened scales deck that got to sideboard four metallic rebukes which was pretty creative just to have post board nice. counterplay and um, I felt that uh, I played against Scam twice. And beyond that, I, I didn't really see any burn at the top tables, nor did I see much Titan or Hammer. And so that makes me think that these decks may have been very popular day one, but I'm not sure if their metagame share in um, day two or later on in the, tur- in the tournament was particularly popular. Um, I saw some four color decks at the top table and that deck continues to sort of unimpress me the elementals shell um but other than that it was a lot of murktide a lot of creativity some number of scam and rhinos um and that was it that was mostly it yeah i think that uh both murktide and creativity kind of being able to prey on the more diverse maybe unexpected field just with their strong game plans going into those kind of matchups um definitely helped pave the way for them so uh, another question for you, we've seen online some discourse uh, questions about whether or not you might just actually be a machine with all these <laughs> top finishes in these tournaments. Is this something we should be concerned about? Are you a uh, part robot? <laughs> I think that this tournament was particularly interesting for me because I felt like for the weekend, I was kind of playing with uh, cards that I was a little unfamiliar with. I started the weekend actually playing in the sealed 5k pre-release and that was with the new set March of the Machines. And so I really had to focus in and learn all the new cards and interactions. And I think having to absorb information that quickly playing sealed and drafting and trying to be creative um, and then transitioning immediately. I mean, when I say immediately, I started my top eight on Saturday morning, the same day of the 20k main event. And then I finished the top four match and we, we probably split top four. I run across the hall to sit down for my match in the 20K main event. And so I think that transition um, from Friday to Saturday meant that I was really operating with like full mental capacity. I wasn't autopiloting my decisions and everything was very intentional. Um, honestly, the tournament itself felt like one where my deck lined up so well in the room that the fact that I was playing quite well to go along with it just made the tournament quite easy compared to a lot of other tournaments. And 
So when you when you're playing well and you have good deck selection for a weekend and you get a little lucky in some spots, something sometimes everything just comes your way. And and that was just how it felt all weekend. I felt like I was getting bailed out by some draw steps. Um, my opponents would slip up a little bit in certain situations, and my sideboard plans were good. That's the best feeling for sure when you bring the right deck on the weekend and, and uh, are playing it well. So that's awesome. Uh, any other thoughts on SEG Richmond or Modern before we dive into Pioneer? Yeah, I mean, the last thing was I had this pretty awesome moment in the finals where I'm playing as my friend Daryl Ayers. And at this point, I, I know we cyborg plan. We've played against each other. We've talked about it. It's open deckless at this point in the tournament. And I decided that, you know what, like I'm really struggling to fight this fair, like this Rhinos game and resolve them against their four change the equations. My counter spells are being ineffective against Veil. I'm just going to board in some endurance so that I can play more at instant speed and increase my threat diversity. And I think that this outside the box approach to sideboarding in a matchup like creativity where it otherwise is pretty unassuming and maybe usually looks quite bad worked out pretty well just due to the fact that I knew he was bringing out removal. And so the threat was actually something he had to answer. And um, I didn't end up winning the game where I played endurance the game too, but trading that for change the equation and trying to be creative with how I was approaching my cyborg plans and making sure that I was responding appropriately to what I thought was a dynamic shift in the matchup was uh, really helpful just, and, and it, it felt really good to be able to, adapt in this way that um i think isn't intuitive in the slightest so that was a cool moment for me definitely that's super interesting it's always uh fun to hear about those uh unique sideboarding choices or unconventional sideboarding um how that factors into the matchup and and the result Mm -hmm. yeah all right so next we are gonna start talking about pioneer um so this is gonna be definitely a big format with a lot of focus on it right now um had some time when it was really down uh, thanks to COVID and restrictions on paper play. The format didn't really have a chance to take off after it was started. Uh, And now it's coming back in a big way. It was the format uh, for the last pro tour. The next one coming up is going to be standard, Um, but pioneer is back definitely in a big way. And these RCQs coming up are going to be pioneer format. So we want to kind of give you a rundown of what's happening in the format right now, what you should expect, what deck you might want to be playing and any general tips that you should consider. So running down um, just the top 15 decks right now in terms of popularity, um, and this is over the past 30 days. So in first place, it should be no surprise to anyone that has played Pioneer recently, it's Rakdos Midrange um, with nearly 15% of the meta share, followed by Abzan Greasefang at just under 10%, Blue White Control at 8.7%, um, and then followed after that, we have Mono Green, Nykdos Ramp, Lotus Field, Neoform Atraxa, Mono White Humans, Gruel Boats, Mono Blue Spirits, Mono Red Aggro, Five Color Midrange, uh, which is more of a bring to light shell. Is it Creativity? Is it Phoenix? Five Color Fires of Invention and Blue White Spirits. And so that is the top 15 right now in the meta. Uh, if you're familiar with any of these decks, you'll know that this is this list is completed by aggro, mid-range, control, and combo decks, so you can play just about anything in Pioneer. Um, there are definitely some that stand above the rest, and uh, we're going to look at each one of these and kind of give you a little bit of a preview and talk about our thoughts on each one. 
So we just talked about the top 15 decks in Pioneer right now in terms of popularity. And I think an important bit of context that we didn't really cover is why are these decks popular now and what changed in the format? Because one thing that I've observed is Pioneer's actually always been a format with a lot of decks, but I think that there was a point in 2022, I would say around, uh, we'll say September and October leading into the first regional championships where there wasn't as much of a wide open metagame as there is now, at least in terms of what people would consider the best strategies. At that point in time, there was, we talked about Phoenix and Red Black Midrange and then Mono Green, which were kind of seen as the top dogs at that point in time. However, I would say leading into regionals, we weren't sure if there was other decks that were super good against Mono Green. And uh, in that tournament, we saw Lotus Field as well as Angels being two decks that emerged and Lotus Field has been around for a long time, but it wasn't something that people were playing as much. And it was widely regarded as a less than uh, top strategy at that point in time. But I would say that um, Lotus Field became popular to fight Phoenix and Angels also became popular as just a threat that people wanted to play because they thought it was good against Red Black at that time. It was kind of a more unknown quantity. Um, So seeing that shift in the RC, um, over time, we also saw Grease Fang became more popular in that tournament. But the main issue that was going on with Grease Fang, which was addressed in the last Pro Tour, was how do we make sure that our Grease Fang deck can actually grind and win post-board games as well as have a consistency? Um, and so the big change there was that people removed copies of Stitcher Supplier from the Grease Fang deck out of the version that my team, Team Handshake, brought for that tournament. And I think seeing that success made uh, that Grease Fang version a lot more stock with Traverses and Vessels. Um, yeah, such a good change. Right, right. And so I would say at this point, the format is a lot more wide open. But as we have talked about a bit in the past as well, there is still some uncertainty around which of these strategies is just being played versus which of them are actually at the top and um, I guess we'll see going into the next RC, which strategies shine through. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to watch that development um, and hopefully breaking down some of these decks, we can shine some light on why certain ones might perform better than others uh, in the upcoming meta. Uh, so mm-hmm. in this first section, we're going to talk about the mid range and aggro decks and starting off with the king of the meta right now, Rakdos Midrange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is sort of the go-to choice right now. I think it's very easy uh, to sort of get into, especially for players who are coming maybe from Standard. Um, a lot of pieces overlap with the Rakdos and Grixis shells in Standard right now. Um, and then this is also just a really classic mid-range strategy. Lots of powerful pieces uh, to be had. And you can... Uh, form a, a functioning and strong strategy against almost every deck in the meta. So, um, right. Nathan, what are your thoughts on Rakdos? Right. So I think that Rakdos is a deck that can adapt to be good against most decks individually. And the fact that it has Thoughtseize and Fable and Shieldred means that the core of it is quite solid. However, I, I take a few issues with the deck itself at this point. Um, I understand that it's a go-to for a lot of players, like you mentioned, but I feel that the deck kind of lacks 
any really great matchups in the metagame share. So previously, and I'll take us all the way back um, to October even, um, Is It Phoenix was one of the dominant decks in Pioneer and was something that I championed and spent a lot of time working on. And at that point in the metagame, Rakdos was quite good against it. And so Rakdos picked up a lot of steam. And then we got to the RC in Atlanta. And at this point, Monogreen Nykdos ramp was also kind of on the decline. People recognized that Monogreen was a little weaker against Rakdos than previously thought. Um, the common public opinion was that Monogreen was ahead against Rakdos, and the truth was somewhere in between that, where it was quite close, actually, and the addition of Misery Shadow made that matchup even closer. Um, but fast-forwarding to now, I feel that the Monogreen deck just got a notable upgrade playing Pelucranos. Definitely. We'll see how many copies become stock in mono green, but it won't surprise me if that card individually changes a lot about the Rakdos matchup. Um, while Rakdos does have a lot of removal, the fact that they have to keep up on threats with a flipped Pelucranos um, seems like a big issue. And I see a lot of Rakdos lists that are trimming on Extinction Event, which was previously one of the strongest cards you could have against mono green. Um, some additional thoughts. I feel that Rakdos isn't really bad anywhere i don't think it's horrible except versus maybe five color mid-range in the omnath niftalite decks like you mentioned but i also would struggle to see a matchup of the top 15 decks where i think that rakdos is like a slam dunk and so when i think of pioneer and the decks that i want to be playing i generally look for something that's powerful proactive and also has some sort of nut draws and well you can say Thoughtseize into Blood Tithe Harvester into Fable is a nut draw compared to the Grease Fangs in the format, Neoform Atraxa, Lotus Field, Creativity even with turn four kills and mono green. I feel that maybe the deck is a little bit slower than I would prefer. And definitely um, and I think that there's still some time to see um if the metagame shapes up where Rakdos would be good. And so when I say that, what I envision is people returning to a lot of small creature decks where Stomp is good. When that card is well-positioned, I, I typically think that Rakdos is in a good spot. So when Spirits is popular, when uh, Mono Red and Mono White are popular decks, I would gravitate more towards Rakdos. But I see those decks more on the decline. And so that makes me feel that... Uh, Rakdos is just a fine deck that you can play, but nothing special at the end of the day. Yeah, and I totally agree with that stance, thinking um, that you know it's got it's got decent matchups, but none are great, and you know none are terribly horrible except for those few that you mentioned. Um, as far as you know, adapting, you mentioned that the deck is able to sort of adapt to the meta and, and fight against whatever it needs to. Do you think? aside from the meta itself changing um, that the deck has room to sort of innovate and adapt within itself still. I think that the direction some Rakdos lists have been going in where they're playing uh, more copies of something like Necromentia and they're taking more of a controlling approach post board with um, higher numbers of discard spells, etc., is helpful for helping with these combo matchups. Um, but again, I do think that, the spread of decks is really wide and they're not very similar in between them. And so game one, your deck has to make specific concessions to what you expect because you just don't have enough slots to play cards that are broadly good. 
Sure. Yeah, um, the, the sideboard doesn't overlap super well against everything. Yeah, and I I say this um, not to feel like Rakdos is something that you straight up shouldn't play, but just to be aware that as far as quote-unquote best decks go, Rakdos is not really above the rest of them on in any other metric other than popularity, and, and that's my opinion on it currently. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm with you on that. Um, so next up, sort of taking a pivot away from mid-range into uh, mono-white humans. So uh, there was a time not too long ago uh, when a lot of people considered this to be the best aggro deck in the format. Um, whether that's still the case is highly debatable. Uh, the deck can get off to some very fast starts, um, but it can also play a little bit of a slower game with interaction and disruption. Um, the new card ossification uh, has really helped it in that regard. Um, but how are we feeling about mono white right now? I know it's been on a decline in terms of popularity, but how are we feeling about its power level and its strength? Personally, this is another example of a deck that I think has just been, is a little outdated in pioneer. Um, one thing I would point towards to why it struggles so much is the popularity of Abzan Greasefang that's gone up a lot. With the last Pro Tour, Team Handshake, the team that I work with, spent a lot of time making a good version of Greasefang that can both play a combo role game one with grindier elements like Vessel of Nascency and Traverse Ilvenwald. And post-board has uh, additional grindy elements with Liliana's and more fair threats in the sideboard. Um, and so historically, I find that I found that Mono White is not particularly good against Grease Fang, even with rest in pieces in their deck. Um, it's a really tricky matchup game one, and, and post board doesn't give you a high, en- high enough matchup up- upgrade that um, the matchup improves that much. Yeah. Um, also, what you would expect to be a very good matchup in like Lotus Field for a very low to the ground aggro deck with Thalia isn't as good as it previously was because I think the Lotus Field lists have been tuned in such a way that they're very competitive in the post-board games and and maybe even a slight bit favored was my feeling by the end of the last Pro Tour. And I don't think much has changed for that dynamic to go away. Um, I think the aggro decks really struggle in Pioneer, and this is a good example of a deck that just doesn't really compete on power level with its individual cards and all the other decks are either playing some combination of uh, lots of cheap removal and fatal push and um, other interaction, or they're playing something that goes over the top. And it's still unclear if the over-the-top decks are, are that far behind versus Mono White. So, I mean, last Pro Tour, it, it won 33% of its matches, and I'm not saying that that data says the deck is just bad outright, but it does point towards better players having a lot more success against mono white, which is usually an indicator of a weaker deck. Yeah, I think that's very telling. Um, like you said, it's not doesn't say everything, but it definitely says a lot about about where the deck is at and how people have sort of adapted to beat it. So uh, not a great time to be playing mono white right now. Uh, so speaking of, you'd mentioned the aggro decks are just having a hard time in general. So let's bump down to mono red aggro. Uh, so this goes real fast. Uh, kind of kills you out of nowhere if it can. It's got a powerful combination of hasty threats, prowess creatures, uh, and lots of burn spells. Um, there's also a version running around, a uh, green-red version that runs a Tarkus command. Uh, that's also worth mentioning. But these mono-red and then green-red decks, uh, what do you think their place is in the meta right now? 
I have a pretty uh, low view of, of most of the agrodecks in Pioneer, and this isn't really an exception for me. I think that the unique factor that Mono Red gets access to is it actually does have draws that will beat any deck in the format. Um, just has a lot of powerful, like fast draws, like you mentioned. Um, but again, I don't see much that I like about the deck. Um, it it asks your opponent asks your opponents a lot of questions about if their hand contains interaction, but it also stumbles and doesn't always have a fast enough draw to beat your opponent's plan A. Um, I also just think that a lot of the creatures you play in this deck are just not very unique. Like you're playing a lot of one mana and two mana two twos with haste and some extra abilities. And the format is set up in such a way that those cards aren't that threatening. Definitely, yeah. Like you said, there's definitely some draws that can go off, but it feels like almost one of those decks that loses to itself or just running out of gas, it loses to that more often than than not. Um, right. It doesn't feel super I, positioned. I would say a better place to look if you do like this style of deck is somewhere in between, like something such as Spirits and... The reason why I feel that way, something like Mono Blue Spirits or Blue White Spirits, is that I think it gets a little bit of the best of both worlds. It has really punishing draws that demand removal and has interaction to back up those draws, um, just in the form of like um, when you play the Spirits deck, you have access to like Curious Obsession effects and ways of getting ahead on cards. And at the same time, you have a lot of counter spells for your opponent's combo game plans or expensive threats. And I feel whenever I play against Spirits, the deck is just very threatening and can win in later stages of the game. So I like the Mono Blue Spirits deck. I still think that it suffers from a similar issue of its card quality being a little lower than the rest of the format, but it's quite synergistic. Um, it's You can't block the creatures on the ground, and so right. some decks are just not set up well against it. And I also feel that the the eight counterspells you get to play in like Geistlight Snare and lofty denial mean that you just are going to lose with good matchups against spirits a decent amount yeah definitely i think i think one of the big strengths of those decks that's worth mentioning is just how every creature they play um sort of comes with a spell stapled onto it or an effect stapled onto it that's going to affect the board or affect um the pattern of the game and being able to just play such a high density of creatures with those, you know, effects and abilities makes it so that they're never really going to run out of gas. They're always going to have something to put out there to pressure you early and then be able to back it up. Um, so I think that's definitely the way to go. If you do want that more aggressive slant um, with sort of the tempo finish and ability to kind of battle with some of the combo decks out there. Mm. Um, I mean, any thoughts on the difference between the mono blue and, and the blue white spirits decks? Yeah, I don't have many strong or unique opinions for that matter on this distinction. I mean, my understanding is that blue-white gets access to things like selfless spirit and additional lords, um, like Imperial Eagle, and also has some better sideboard cards so they can play Rest in Peace, which does seem like a pretty nice sideboard card. I'm just not sure if the trade-off between that is worth it when the cost is not being able to play something like Faceless Haven. Sure. Um, Maybe playing Mutavolts in that deck is okay. Um, and, and so maybe the trade-off is more minor than it feels in my head. I still think that 
the deck got a little hurt from the new set, and that's worth mentioning. I mentioned earlier that I think the presence of Pelucanos can change the dynamics between some mid-range matchups, and this is another matchup where that impact will be felt even uh, to an even greater degree, just because, well, the Spirits decks always struggled against Cavalier of Thorns, and now we're adding three mana Cavalier of Thorns against their deck, which yeah. is obviously very bad news. Big for difference. The reach is is definitely an important part of that card. I think it's unspoken, and a lot of people overlook it, but that's huge in this matchup, and reach goes a long way. Yeah. 100%. Something they, they can't go over, and they can't go through. It's just uh, a really awesome card. When we get to mono green, we'll talk about that a little more. Um, but for now, um, another sort of mid-rangey deck here, we have Gruel Boats. Um, so for those who aren't sure, Boats uh, refers to Sky Sovereign, uh, console flagship uh, but the deck is also focused on other vehicles like Asika's chariot so this mid-range deck uh, can play quickly and be aggressive uh, or it can sort of grind you down over time utilizing those vehicles for extra value um, and it also utilizes the elves the mana dorks uh, to speed up its curve and be more efficient um, and having access to some premium red removal gives it an edge in some matchups as well um, I think this deck is super interesting. I don't know that it's in a great spot right now um, as far as the meta lines up against it. Um, but overall, it looks pretty decent. What are your thoughts on it? My immediate thoughts are, what does this deck look like versus Mono Green? Because it's an obvious comparison to make given that both of the shells lean into eight Elvish Mystics as their early start and the power of the deck versus other strategies in the format. When I have to... When I look at Gruul, what I see is um, a deck that is certainly much faster in the face of um, other smaller creature decks and can interact because you have access to Stomp, like we've talked about. Um, you have Reckless Stormseeker for even quicker draws, and you play Sky Sovereign to go over the top of something like Black Red Midrange. But I see a few issues here as well. Um, I realize I am a little critical of some of these off-the-meta strategies that are like not the tip top of of the pioneer decks right now and i do think that there is uh room for gruel to be a good deck but i'm just not sure if it really got any angles that make it a better choice than it's been previously um yeah i think that's I mean, fair. Can, it definitely hasn't gotten can, upgrades in the way that mono green has or some of the other decks have right you could even argue that it's like a slower deck than mono green in terms of gold fishing and so if your opponent's interacting with you they have to be able to uniquely interact with um the or rather they have to uniquely not be able to interact with the gruel threats um that could interact with the monogreen threats sure for the gruel deck to be better and when i'm saying that i'm thinking why like reckless storm seeker is a good card versus old growth troll like if if they can kill one of those two threats more effectively usually the storm seeker i feel that the mono green deck kind of has similar advantages. Um, it can't goldfish as fast like we talked about and has a sideboard, but I just don't see it. And I feel that the mono green deck has a lot of similar benefits. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Um, what I've seen playing online just even in the past couple of weeks is is more mono green than I have in a while. Uh, and it's interesting when we, again, we have some stuff to talk about when we get to that deck, but it does seem like um, it's just, bullying some of these other decks out of the format and, and asserting its dominance over them so 
Right. Um, right. Let's see. We have two more in this section to talk about. Um, so next, let's talk about our other Tempo-y style deck. And is it Phoenix? Um, so this is one of the ones that was around from the very beginning. Um, it's always sort of lurking there. Um, a lot less popular now than it was, like you mentioned, um, back around the October time frame. Um, but it is. it has the ability to threaten the board to be aggressive or it can kind of tempo you out and sit back play the controlling game so it's got a lot of flexibility you're able to adapt a lot with it um, but it has fallen off a lot recently um what do you think the reason for that is and is there anything that can kind of push this back to the top yeah i think that is it phoenix is very very powerful and has access to like some of the best cards in the format just because um, well, for one, I'm a pretty big piece of the puzzle fan. I've played that card a ton, had a lot of success with it. And I think that building your deck in a way that enables that card makes it into quite, quite a strong one. And you get to play treasure cruise in your deck and delve spells, which is not something that a lot of decks in the format particularly use well. Um, remember treasure cruise being banned in every other format, yeah. uh, just speaks to the power level of that effect. But my main issues I see are... The deck wants to is pulling itself in a few different directions. One, it wants to be good against removal spells. It uses Arclight Phoenix, and the only other creatures it plays are Ledger Shredder. So it wants to make opposing removal spells bad, but it has a threat that's too good to not play, I would say, in Ledger Shredder, which right. means that you're not actually bricking your opponent's removal, um, and that's a problem. And then it also wants to be able to keep up with the board but the way that the shell is built, the only way it could do so is through uh, damage-based removal spells. And so when Fiery Impulse isn't in a good place, and additionally, when your Lightning Axes are taxed, meaning like it's hard to consistently bring back Arclight Phoenixes quickly with them, and you feel the card loss pretty significantly, um, I feel the Arclight Phoenix deck struggles. Um, it's very good at adapting in post-board games, and... I will say that it is possible the deck gets better with the addition of new cards over time. I, I don't currently see that being the case in this format. Um, but I feel the Arclid Phoenix deck is, again, a little too weak in terms of keeping up on power level. And the best deck, uh, or at least most popular deck in Black Red Midrange, is quite good against it. So... I, I'm waiting for its time to shine. <laughs> yeah, despite the uh, the power of the Delve spells, it definitely has a lot working against it. Uh, I am with you, though. I think that over time, we could see some pieces get added to kind of bring it back into relevance. Right now, it just there's uh, a lot going on that isn't great for it. Um, so taking things a totally different direction, um, these five-color, some people call them five-color mid-range when they submit their results, um, five-color Omnath, five color Niv to Light decks. Um, the latter is probably the closest description to them. These are of this category, sort of probably the closest to being a control deck versus mid range, uh, but they can play a shorter game as well. Um, a lot of the lists are not playing Niv. Uh, Niv Meza anymore, which is interesting, um, but there are still quite a few that are. But the main thing tying these decks together is the card Bring to Light, um, giving 
them basically additional copies of the key cards in the deck. And then Omnath is also a key stabilizer and a key piece to go over the top in some of these matchups. Uh, the deck is playing a toolbox of creatures and key spells to tutor off of Bring the Light, um, and that gives it a lot of flexibility and uh, being able to find the right card it needs uh, for whatever game it's playing. Um, this is mm-hmm. a deck that's super interesting to me. Um, it's been putting up some decent results lately. Um, have you seen anything um, coming out of this? I like this deck a lot. I think that the angle of... I mean, let's just like simplify this shell really quickly. Like When I look at this deck... What I feel its strengths are is that it's a really good leyline binding deck. And when I'm describing pioneer decks and looking for strengths, typically there's categories of specific cards that I want to be playing in my deck, and that if built around well with cards that are well positioned or otherwise just high impact, um, the strategy can be good. So leyline binding is something that's arguably the best removal spell if you can enable it in pioneer just like one mana exile everything um is great i think that it does that job particularly well which makes me interested in it um additionally i feel that the other angle that the omnath niv to light or i guess it's not playing niv anymore the omnath bring to light deck gets to utilize is it doesn't actually need to um play this one-for-one game where it's it's necessarily fighting over all these cheap cards because you have access to effectively six copies of Wrath in your deck with four Bring to Lights, usually a Selfless Glyph Weaver, and an Extinction Event, meaning that almost every game, if you get to turn five, you'll be able to Wrath your opponent or otherwise interact with their board. Um, that's a huge strength to the deck, and I feel the problem that i see with the deck if i had to say like why would this deck maybe not be great is it doesn't really have so much in the way of interacting with spells so if your opponent's on a creature-based strategy it's going to usually excel um of course it gets to play four fable and so it always has a really solid turn three play as another one of the best cards in pioneer and and so being a four uh, fable four leyline binding shell is something that intrigues me a lot. But I think its success rests on the popularity of these unfair decks that we'll get to shortly. And additionally, if the shell can be optimized, uh, particularly the sideboard, which I think there's really little consensus on right now. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the the most interesting things about this deck is that people are really brewing, really innovating with it. I mean, just seeing people taking Niv out of this deck that it's been such a staple in for so long um, and trying out different strategies, trying out different sideboard plans. Um, it feels like the deck is very underexplored and, and could definitely find its way in. Um, and with a little help from the meta, it could definitely be on top. I could see that for sure. Our next segment is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling Jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. Learn more at myboogieboard.com games. That's myboogieboard.com games. Never start a match without your Boogie Board. 
So Nathan, we've covered um, all of the aggro and mid-range decks within that fifteen uh, top 15 list that we looked at. So in this next section, let's look at um, the different combo and control options that we have in Pioneer right now, starting with one that you touched on in our sort of big picture overview uh, in Obsan Grease Fang. So this is one of the fastest combo decks in the format, using Grease Fang to bring uh, vehicles like Chariot and Parhelion 2 back from the yard, uh, swinging for massive damage as early as turn 3. But uh, new variants can also allow it to play a very grindy game and a more fair plan uh, as the game goes on. So this deck has seen a lot of changes recently. Do you think that we finally settled on the Vessel version being the uh, stock choice, perhaps the better version now over the um, Stitcher Supplier Eldritch Evolution version? Yeah, I think that a big part of this is that Eldritch Evolution and Stitcher Supplier are cards that look a lot better on paper because they're a lot more linear and they contribute to hands that are faster because Stitcher Supplier obviously helps you find your Parhelion at a faster rate than the Vessel does just due to the mana investment. But the the thing that I feel is going to be apparent, um, especially if you've played with this new version with Vessel and Traverse, is that your ability to compete in the post-board games is a lot stronger. Uh, previously, the Eldritch Evolution Stitcher Supplier version maybe is better in game one, especially when your opponent doesn't have graveyard interaction because you have that virtual eight copies of Grease Fang and you have a little more speed. But I don't think it makes up for the fact that people post-board are going to be boarding in discard spells and graveyard hate. And when they sideboard into configurations like this, you'd much rather be on the side of having Vessel and Traverse being able to play sideboard bullets, potentially like Knight of Autumn and Shieldred, um, and having Liliana of the Veil, which was another big sideboard consideration that uh, I think really helps out, especially because you can actually find that one off Vessel, um, I believe. So that that's another strong... Um, point in favor of the Vessel Traverse version. And um, I do think people are just going to consider that the consensus from now on. Yeah, I mean, having played this version a little bit myself, it definitely feels like you just always have the ability to go grab a threat, go grab the piece you need, fill your graveyard. Like, you, you always just have a lot more action. And I think one of the big things is just being able to time your moves a little bit better, especially with Vessel, you know, not having to just drop a creature like Citrus Supplier and have it do its thing right away, but being able to play around the graveyard hate a little better um, and just, you know, time out when you want to turn on Delirium, when you are ready um, to go for your combo, having that flexibility has been really huge for this deck. And I think it's made it honestly a lot better. Um, you know, in my opinion, I think it's definitely one of the top decks in the format right now. Um, where do you see it kind of playing compared to some of these others we've talked about? I think Grease Fang is just a very solid strategy because one of the issues that we had before has been alleviated with the inconsistency problem that it had. And also, it's a lot better against spot removal. It can just win fair games through spot removal at a higher frequency than it could before. The main things that I would be concerned about if I played Grease Fang is I've seen a bit of a move towards cards like Leyline of the Void out of Red Black. And if I were on the Grease Fang side, that would be a concern. Even then, I'm not as worried just because if they don't draw it in their opener, Leylines are quite bad against you. And if they ever top deck it, they can just lose the fair game because they can't really take a turn off to cast that one. Right. Um, additionally, I feel that if people are moving towards Pelucranos and Monogreen, I may have touched on this already, but I do think that that's a notable change that um, 
we can also say hurts Grease Fang a lot. Like you, you already suffered from Cavalier being a card that was difficult for you, but now Pelucanos also means the Angel's Clock is slower, and a flipped version of that is extremely threatening as well. Um, just the Reach creatures. Yeah, I mean that's it's a really good point, and and we're actually going to talk about Mono Green next. Um, it seems like you know Pelucanos has really quickly cemented itself within that archetype as a staple um and seems like it's going to be a problem for quite a few decks so let's actually talk about mono green um a lot of people liken this to sort of the tron deck of pioneer um uses mana dorks uh, and then nykthos and untappers like kiora to generate massive amounts of mana uh based on devotion to green so a lot of um spells with a bunch of green pips coming into the battlefield um so this deck is kind of flexible and then it can play the beatdown plan with a bunch of stompy green threats that come down quickly or it can also combo off um, using karn and a toolbox of artifacts um, and they can also play somewhere in the middle um, with just a bunch of big threats and then karn tutoring for pieces to shut down uh, your opponent so this deck in my opinion has gotten some huge upgrades recently um, and we saw its stock kind of dip down um, around the time of the last pro tour, but now it definitely seems like it's uh, on the resurgence and definitely can compete with some of these other decks and just kind of go over the top. So what are your thoughts on mono greens placement right now? In terms of power level, mono green has always been one of the strongest in pioneer just because Nykthos itself um, just as a way of cheating on mana is huge. And I do think that there's a level of uh, fear that players have when they're playing mono green that if they don't know how to combo uh, precisely that they're going to lose a lot of equity in matches. I think that this is a little overstated. A lot of the time, if your main goal is just, I want to generate as much mana as possible and you use your toolbox in order to leverage your QRs and then eventually you realize you're in a board state where your opponent's dead to restoration, um, returning to permanence. That's good enough. I also think that um, one one mistake that players make with Monogreen quite often is not mulganing aggressively enough, and that can make it perform a lot worse than other strategies. I've watched a lot of really good players playing with Monogreen, and they're not afraid to go down to five cards um, on a pretty frequent basis. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, Monogreen is stellar, by any means, like in the past, people may fe- may have felt that mono green just crushes on the red black decks, and that's something interesting we referred to earlier, which is the red black decks have gotten tools to fight mono green's fair threat plan, and the extinction event plan out of their deck um, poses a bigger threat. But overall, you can't go wrong playing mono green in the tournaments. Um, it just has the highest power level ceiling and also some of the most explosive draws and even it's bad matchups can't be so bad because it goldfishes so quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so aside from Pelucranos, which like I said, has definitely seemed to cement itself into the stock build. Um, there's also been some players trying out uh, a new enchantment from March of machine called tribute to the world tree. Um, so that's three green pips for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically it, lets you kind of refill your hand uh, whenever a creature enters the battlefield. Um, if its power is three or greater, you draw a card. Um, otherwise, you put two plus one plus ones on it. So uh, basically, you know, it turns those those non-turn one elves into um, a decent threat, plus also just refilling your hand as you dump creatures out, um, either naturally or with Storm. 
but you know, this card isn't one we've seen in every list. Um, and it's kind of hard to tell whether it deserves a place. Um, people are also testing out some battles in Invasion of Ikoria and Invasion of Ixalan. Um, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts on some of these other new pieces aside from Polokronos? The tribute's interesting to me as sort of a pseudo Great Henge um, that you can main deck that also serves as three green pips for Nykthos. Um You're a little bit glut, um, like glutted on threes just because we want to play some number of Pelucranos. Maybe four is not the right number and you can split some number of those Pelucranoses with the tribute to the world trees. Sure. But, um, the stock mono green lists um, in the past have had about four flex slots, maybe five if you're being generous. And I think the rest of the deck is pretty much cemented. And so if you're going to use those excess slots, I would say you start with two Pelucranos, which leads you down to two to three flex slots. And then if you wanted to play one of the new battles, I'm not a big fan of the um, the X green green battle, um, battle of the, the Ikoria one, I believe. Yeah, Ikoria. But, mm-hmm. but I like the one green one that lets you reveal a permanent for five. Um, I do wonder, I don't know how the rules text works on battles. Can you generate mana with the green pip from uh, Devotion if you have a battle or no? So on the battle, yes, but uh, I believe when it flips to the backside, then that goes away, so you're not able to. Right. Okay. Well, it, it seems like a solid option. I know some people were trying some of those over Oath of Nisses, which it kind of remains to be seen if that's a better swap, but it's something worth trying. Yeah, definitely. Um, one interesting uh, aspect from the Invasion of Ixalan being um, just one green for its casting cause is that if you can flip that over, um, that actually gives you you know a 4-3 trampler um, that can dodge Extinction Event out of the red-black deck. So that's something that uh, might be worth keeping an eye on going forward. Mm. Um, yeah, that is cool. Any other thoughts on mono green before we move on? Cool. Uh, so next, um, let's look at blue white control. So this has also been around for a very long time. It's a classic pioneer deck, um, classic uh, sort of draw go control strategy. Um, you are playing a ton of counter spells, sweepers, removal, and, and then trying to finish the game off with your planeswalkers in the Wandering Emperor and uh, five mana to fairy hero of Dominaria, as well as uh, shark typhoon tokens. Um, so this deck uh, is one that is always around, um, never at the top, never at the bottom. Uh, it's just kind of doing its thing. Um, where do we see blue white control right now and what its role is in the meta? I mean, blue-white does a lot of um, to to punish the, the combo decks, and it usually has been something that um, you haven't wanted to face if you were in Greasefang just because they had rest in pieces, um, as well as it's typically something that um, you, you don't love if you're playing an aggro deck just because now they've picked up laydown arms and they do have a decent amount of removal. I would say, similar to what you claimed about blue-white, never at the top, never at the bottom, but it really doesn't have any stellar matchups of the top decks, Um, even the red-black mid-range deck and um, some of the other decks we talked about in terms of popularity, like Grease Fang at this point with the grindier plan and um, Mono Green and even Lotus Field. I don't love to play against if I'm on the blue-white side. I, I also don't like the specific part about blue white where it doesn't really do anything powerful and proactive, which is what I'm looking for in my pioneer decks. I would rather play something that 
allows me to play the same threats that this deck has. Um, I mean, Teferi is obviously an excellent threat, same with the Wandering Emperor, but also uh, doesn't have to have interaction at, at every break point on turn two and three. I feel if you get a little far behind with the blue-white deck, it can be really easy to to just lose. And so I'm not super excited about it. I um, Yeah, it, it's a fine deck you can play, and there's some people that are always going to be control mages and, and want to run this in every field they can. And if they want to play blue-white, you're still easily able to win a tournament. But it does take having a really good knowledge of all the other cards your opponent is playing and what cards matter and what the key threats are from their decks so that you don't use your counter spells on things that aren't super relevant. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And what we've sort of emphasized throughout the episode is is picking your Pioneer deck and, and learning the ins and outs of it. It's getting good at playing it, understanding how it plays against the meta. And, and with this blue-white deck, it's more important than ever. Um, with just sort of the value and the power of everything right now, you're not going to be able to totally control everything as much as you'd like to. So what you mentioned as far as, you know, understanding what you need to counter out of each of these decks, what needs to go, what's what you can kind of let slide until you can stabilize down the road is super important. So definitely some power here if if you know what you're doing uh, and, and you really like that controlling style. But yeah, probably not. Uh, the highest choice you can make in terms of, of power level and just making an impact on the game right now. Right. Um, so I was going to say, Cody, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. Um, I think one good direction to follow up the blue white deck with is, is kind of a good contrast in that is a creativity deck. Because when I think of decks that are powerful, proactive, and also have access to a controlling plan, that deck comes to mind as just doing what blue white does on a level that's a little bit stronger to me. So if we could touch there, I know you have um, just some thoughts on, on the creativity deck. If you want to start us there, I think that would be a great uh, place to go. Yeah, definitely. That's the direction I was going to take us in anyway. So that's a good point. Um, so this was another uh, standout deck that we saw at the PT that Reduke uh, took it down with. Is it creativity um, using its namesake card Indomitable Creativity to cheat out big threats ahead of time? Um, notably, though, there are several variants of this deck running around right now, which um, we'll kind of compare and contrast. Um, some want to end the game in one turn, uh, hitting you for 30 with the combo of World Spine Worm and Xenagos. Um, others are looking to just drop and attracts a grand unifier into play as soon as possible and then refill their hand to go again. Um, and then others are using the torrential gear Hulk plan to recast magma opus ideally or another instant from the graveyard. Um, so these three versions are all running around right now. They've all seen a lot of success. I think they also each have sort of different pros and cons going into the meta in different matchups. Um, you know, each each build can kind of thrive in different matchups. Um, so let's kind of just break down, first of all, um, the differences between these three decks. Mm-hmm. Well, we can start with what does the stock version look like that's been going around at the Pro Tour? We saw Reduke, yeah, one with World Spine Worm plus Xenagos. Um, but the thing that you need to do if you're playing those cards is you need to cast creativity for X equals two, meaning you have to have two artifacts or creatures to target. Um, when you're playing the Atraxa version, you are pretty happy to just cast it for X equals one, which means that you have a turn four creativity plan that other decks 
uh, the other versions of the deck don't have access to, which makes you a lot scarier to play against and also means that you goldfish your plan A a little faster. Um, and in contrast, even the Gearhawk version, you can do it for one to three, but you're a little faster as well because you play Magma Opus as something that you want to cycle in order to enable. You cycle Magma Opus and then you cast Creativity for at least one. You get um, Gearhawk, then you cast Magma Opus, and suddenly you're a lot better into cheap creatures. You're not necessarily killing your opponent immediately, but you're putting your opponent so far behind on cards and resources on the board that they're usually buried um, by the time that you follow up that Magma Opus. Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing worth pointing out is um, the difference between the Worm and Xenagos build and the Atraxa build versus the Gearhulk build is that the the Gearhulk build has the potential to kind of just sit back and, you know, hard cast the Gearhulk using um, treasure tokens. Uh, you can also make Power Stone tokens off of Stern Lesson, uh, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a second. But just being able to sit back and actually cast the Gearhulk and still get its effect um versus the other two builds that are sort of more all in on the combo and aren't really going to be hard casting their threats obviously they have other ways they can win besides creativity um but getting those big threats out relying on that creativity effect um what do you think the pros and cons are of of being able to hard cast the gear hulk versus going more all in on the creativity plan for the other two so i mean the pros of being able to hard cast gear hulk are just that you don't end up with these um, basically uncastable threats in hand. You have to play um, and cast your Fire Prophecy or effectively Volcanic Sprite at this point as the upgrade that we just got for the deck um, in order to put either Xenagos or World Spine Worm on bottom if you draw them because your combo doesn't work if you cast Creativity for X equals 2 and you don't have both of them in your deck, so naturally drawing them is a pretty big cost. Um, additionally, just... The other angle that the Gearhulk deck has is it just has really scary fair threats it can play. With the Creativity deck, the, the Zengos and World Spine Worm version, what you're doing is you're accumulating resources um, with big scores and you have your removal spells and Shark Typhoons. And so when you have those two slots and you're not playing Magma Opus, what you get to play is more copies of Make Disappear and other interaction like Spell Pierce, um, which I like. I think that's a pretty big benefit. You're not so worried about putting threats into play until the turn you kill them. You're just playing blue-red control, and all your cards are pretty good. I think that the con of the Gearhawk version there is just that you end up with Torrential Gearhawk in hand sometimes, and you have to play a lot of copies because your plan is revolving around casting this fair card. Also, I think that there's spots where Magma Opus doesn't actually impact the game that well, which is, let's say you're playing against something like... um, even Grease Fang and you cast Magma Opus on your turn, it's actually not that effective just because they can ignore that and resolve Grease Fang in that window that you give them. Or if you're playing versus Lotus Field, they don't care about that, but the Zengos angle with Worldspine Worm is super threatening. And um, additionally, we could just say that versus something like Five Color Fires or generally Leyline Binding decks, it's much better to have Torrential Gearhulk just because they can't interact that well versus versus world spine worm they can just cast leyline binding and effectively counter your creativity and stop you from having a plan going forward so those are some pros and cons of each i think it's more of a metagame call than anything but the default version being the uh version with zen ghost and world spine worm makes a lot more sense to me especially because we know that uh pro teams spent a ton of time working on that version for the last pro tour and it's hard to say that a ton of chain 
a ton has changed since then. Yeah, definitely. Um, something else I want to point out between the different versions here is, and you mentioned that the worm and Xenagos version, um, you know, your plan being to cast creativity for X equals two kind of necessitates playing um, the card big score. Um, I personally am not a fan of that card. I think it, you know, it really leaves you open to getting blown out, you know, if they counter it. Um, and then also just taking turn four to, you know, make two treasures and, and draw cards. You know, if you aren't set up to win the next turn, it's just not uh, a great card, in my opinion, um, versus some of these other versions are able to play sort of more flexible ways to enable the combo. Um, Stern Lesson being one of them. Um, there's a few versions playing Prismari Command, which I'm not sure lines up super great with the meta right now. Um, but not being forced to play big score um is definitely an interesting angle that the other two versions take do you have any thoughts on that card or or the perks of playing it or not playing it i'm not a big fan of big score either it's almost a necessary evil when you're playing that version of the deck um ultimately i think that i don't love stern lesson as well so it feels like whatever version you're playing, you're going to have to play a suboptimal draw engine, but at least that one's a little better against counter magic. I do like that big score um, accelerates you pretty quickly into your plan. And so you do have to play it if you're playing the version where you do X equals two, but uh, yeah, it's not ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So before we move on to the next deck, um, what would be your ranking? uh, If you just had to put these three in order right now uh, with the meta that we know of and and the builds that we have. Sure. Um, my ranking would be uh, Absan, Greasefang. Uh, oh, I'm creativity. sorry. For, um, just for creativity, of the three creativity builds. Oh, my apologies. I was just looking no, at the good. three decks we had just talked about. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I think that the ranking is um, Zengo's World Spine Worm, uh, Gearhawk, and then Atraxa. And I think that the Atraxa version is certainly worse. Um, we didn't even spend a, bu- a touch, ton of time talking about that, but I just think that their plan doesn't really have many unique benefits, and I think that it's pretty close between the other two versions. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I think that those those first two are are very close, and like we've mentioned, just kind of vary based on the meta. So, um, all right, a couple more decks to cover here in this combo control section. Um, the next one is the comboiest combo deck in Pioneer, arguably, uh, Lotus Field. So here you're using um, two lands, Lotus Field plus Thespian Stage, uh, which copies the Lotus Field to generate lots of mana. Um, and then you're using cards to untap your lands, draw cards, uh, generate more mana, keep tapping and untapping. Um, ultimately, you have a lot of ways to win, a lot of complex lines to master. Um, the most straightforward would be to cast Emergent Ultimatum and pull three threats out of your deck that your opponent uh, gets to put one back, but really they can't win uh, by putting one back since the other two are going to combo you off anyway. Um, but again, lots of lines to master, lots of ways to win with this deck. Um, Nathan, you played this at PT for Exia. So, uh, what are your thoughts on it now compared to when you played it at the pro tour? Yeah. So I think the Lotus field deck got basically no upgrades from the new set. One new piece of tech that our team found was layer of the Hydra in the deck, because what that allowed you to do was you can kill your opponent if they 
artist don't brain all of your uh, either masterminds acquisitions or hidden strings, just given that once they uh, get rid of your actual win con, what you can do is generate enough mana once you put an omniscience in play, um, which I know sounds hard, but it's fairly trivial once you're going off with the Lotus Field deck. And right. then you can use your Thespian stage to copy a layer of the Hydra that you've either put into play with their Boreal Grazer or just naturally found and attack them for 20 and tap down their blockers with um, either hidden strings or, um, yeah, usually through that. And so that was a nice piece of tech we found to just X equals 20 them when they um, were to get rid of your Mastermind's acquisitions. Um, but in its current place, um, I'm a big proponent of Lotus Field deck. I think that the unique strength that it has is it's actually quite good at playing through hate because a lot of its cards are redundant. So even though the deck looks very difficult, what you're trying to achieve is you want to generate um, a threshold of mana at which you can resolve Emergent Ultimatum or Dark Petition. And and then you want to either look for Leer or some other way of continuing the chain. Um, but once you resolve Emergent Ultimatum with one blue, the simplest way of winning with the deck is you get Dark Petition, Beholds, um, which lets you search for three cards after you discard your hand, and Omniscience. And so let's see, like, what can your opponent do to stop this? If Well, they obviously can't give you Omniscience, because if they give you Omniscience, you just go Omniscience plus Dark Petition, let's say. Then you search the Behold, and then it's fairly trivial to win once you get three cards from your deck. So let's say they give you the other pile with Behold and Dark Petition. What you do is you resolve the Behold first, and then the Dark Petition, and you get Hidden Strings, Hidden Strings, Omniscience, and then on the Dark Petition Resolution you can get Balagad Recovery or another Emergent Ultimatum, whatever you prefer. You use the two hidden strings, because like I said, you have to have a blue mana floating um, to generate um, essentially four mana per hidden strings plus the three from Dark Petition. So that's four down to two, up to six, down to four, up to ten. Cast Omniscience, cast Balagad, and then you could search for three more cards, getting either Masterminds for Approach and then another Dark Petition to cast Approach again or some other combination that lets you combo through opposing hate, let's say. Um, so the threshold to kill the opponent is actually not that hard once you assemble the Lotus plus Thespian stage in play. Um, but the deck obviously has some really complex lines when the board states are unclear and when you don't get that um, ease of resolution with your big payoff. And so I, I think it's a very intimidating deck for people to play, and the principles of mulganing with it are complex but um it, it is really rewarding once you get the reps in and i find the deck really fun yeah and <laughs> i think that just what you ran through right there is as like sort of the simple way to win um is sometimes maybe even enough to scare people off you know it's it, not a deck for everyone but um once you kind of get over the hump with it and, and figure out what you're doing it can definitely be powerful um so as a proponent of lotus field um, how would you recommend someone pick this deck up and and play through kind of the the growing pains of it as as you learn it and not uh, just dive off into something else if if they feel like they're just lost? I mean, the best place to start is to pick up a guide for this deck. I know that um, a particularly experienced player, um, I believe Connor Mullaly, who plays this deck a lot, has posted a guide on Twitter and that seems super in-depth and a good explanation of 
How do you learn Lotus Field? What are the lines you have to know? Where do you start? And what type of hands are Keeps or Mulgans? So that would be a good resource to pick up if you're like, I want to learn this deck, but I don't know where to start. Um, I also feel like it is something that you're going to just make some mistakes with in calculating mana and thresholds. And um, you just have to force your way through it and get more and more reps. It's a good deck to goldfish if you don't want to play live games just because of pacing. And I think goldfishing it is pretty rewarding just because playing through the lines, you can probably get the equivalent of 50 combo turns um, really easily versus if you're playing live games, that's going to take a lot of hours. So that's a great place to start. And it's a great deck to goldfish with. Definitely. All right. Um, Let's see. We have two decks here in this section left to cover. Uh, So the next one is sort of a newcomer to Pioneer. Um, Neoform Atraxa. So this is another fast combo deck um, that goes all in looking to turn a cheap Delve creature into an Atraxa as soon as possible. It can go off as soon as turn three. It can protect its combo really well. And it's seen a big uptick in popularity in recent weeks. Um, definitely a lot of streamers playing it and testing it out, trying to, to figure out if if this is the real deal or not. And, you know, I think with the release of March of Machines, we've seen some some of these same people playing Neoform Atraxa, sort of pivoting and trying out the new uh, Rona combo, which we're not going to cover today. Um, but as far as this Neoform deck goes, there's also uh, a dedicated player base that, that claims that it's definitely one of the most powerful decks in the format. Do we think it is, or do we think this is more of a flash in the pan? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good word to describe what it could be just based on looks. I mean, it's pretty all in, right? Like you you have to assemble a Delve creature, a six minute Delve creature into Neo form. Um, it does have unique strengths, right? Like you get to play Thoughtseize in your deck, you have Stubborn Denial so that once you resolve one of your threats, you have ways of protecting it and you have some redundancy in founding the third path. The main issue with it is you do need to find Neoform in a timely manner, and it is a two-card combo that can be weak to removal spells if your combo is through Founding the Third Path, because then your opponent has the opportunity to respond. You have to cast your creature before you Founding the Third Path. Right. Um, It's also weak to Graveyard Hate, Counter Spells, and Hand Disruption, so it's weak to a lot of angles. I don't know. Um, this is probably the deck on the list that is the most unknown quantity to me. I haven't played with this deck much. I haven't watched it a ton and I've seen it have some results. So I would say I'm, I'm just as much unsure of how good this deck is, um, as I could be. I mean, maybe something new changes in the archetype is really good and maybe it already is. And it just needs some really strong minds to work on it. Um, But it remains to be seen, and I think it's a good place to start exploring if you're the type of person that is really into these sorts of combo strategies and um, wants to try to make the version of the deck better, because there's a lot of room to improve on it. Yeah, it feels like one to watch for sure. It it also feels probably of of any of the decks we've talked about today, like the one with the most potential uh, for brewing and iterating and finding you know, the so so on so stock list. So interesting to see where that one will go. Uh, and then last one we're going to talk about right now uh, is Five Color Fires. So here we see our friend Yorian and this 80 card toolbox deck uses both Fires of Invention and Enigmatic Incarnation to slowly generate tons of value, find its key pieces and play a long grindy game. Um, this deck is one that I played a while back just um I like the toolbox style. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, 
also it was thriving against Rakdos, which was real big in my local meta when I was playing it. Um, I still think the deck is super fun, but definitely in terms of matching up with the rest of the metagame, now that Rakdos is not maybe quite as popular and has some other uh, threats taking it down, feels not quite as well positioned. Have you um, had a chance to play this list or, or watch anything about it? Yeah, I, I have played a bit with the deck in the past. Um, I think it is easy to contrast this with the Omnath Burn to Light piles. And so I, I'm not sure which version of the two is better, but it seems like Omnath is picking Steam up a little bit faster just because the Bring to Light toolbox is something that people have liked more with the Wraths. And um, I, I don't know which version is better, to be quite honest. I haven't played this deck in a while. It did get a nice upgrade that I'm looking to see what the impact of it is in the um, three mana shark. I don't know the full name of the shark, but that yeah, card the seems Chrome Host Seed Shark. Right, that card seems quite strong in this shell, just because that plus leyline binding is a huge combo. Yeah. Um, it, it actually only just cares about mana value um, when you cast it, and so you can make six sixes um, with ease. And just sacking a two mana enchantment to get that is really nice. We didn't, we had some toolbox three drops, but nothing that played this overwhelming value role. Um, so I think that's pretty cool to look for. Otherwise, I don't know a ton about this deck in recent times, but it has been on the decline and I haven't seen a ton of it. Yeah, I think this is also another attracts a deck with uh, being able to, to get that off the ley line binding at seven mana, whereas before, you know, the options were basically sort of like Agent of Treasury, Titan of Industry, nothing that's like um, overwhelming definitely good pieces to get but nothing crazy so attracts is interesting here i think if you're a fan of the toolbox deck like you said either this uh or the bring the light deck are definitely something to try out and it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve it definitely feels like a deck where you know one piece from an upcoming set could could help bring it um into more relevance so always a deck to keep an eye on with pieces uh, added to it so that wraps up our look at the combo and control decks um so before we take a quick look at last weekend's uh challenges for pioneer and some overall thoughts on the meta um, of these 15 decks nathan which uh which is your favorite what are you uh, most interested in right now yeah um so i think my answer is kind of predictable but I played Lotus Field in a, uh, a Mana Traders, I believe, 20k or 10k event last weekend and really enjoyed playing that deck. I think the learning curve, like we've talked about, is a little steep, but that's my pick for personally what I think the best choice is. Um, I don't know if that's what I would say everyone should play. So if I had to give a second answer, I would pick Grease Fang. Sure. Um, I think the Grease Fang deck... It, like we've talked about, has this aspect of consistency that it was missing. I love the cyborg plans, and I generically think that uh, it's it's really tough to interact with, and it gets to play the best interaction in Thoughtseize. So I'm a big fan of that deck. Yeah, two great recommendations. I think if I had to choose um, an archetype that I'm really a fan of right now, it would be creativity, sort of just iterating on the, the different versions that are available and finding um, which one is the best to exploit the meta you're expecting. I think both of those have a lot of potential and are definitely powerful options that you can pick up, maybe a little bit of a less learning curve than something like Lotus Field, uh, but definitely, again, a deck that you need to pick up and learn your lines, learn your interaction, uh, and you'll gain a lot of equity in that way. 
So quickly before we sign off, um, just want to look at the weekend pioneer challenge results from last weekend. Um, so we had uh, on the 422 challenge that was taken down by Sam Sherman on mono green. And that list uh, interesting included two copies of Pelucranos and um, one each of the battles invasion of Ikoria and Ixalan that we talked about. So interesting to see those there. And then the 423 challenge was taken down uh, by Zerk on a Grixis transmogrify build, which is similar to the Atraxa creativity. And then it's looking to put Atraxa into play, but you do get some of the interaction from black with thought and fatal push um, and just more of a fair controlling game plan. Uh, in three colors there. So those were some interesting results from the weekend. We also saw in the top eights uh, on Saturday's challenge, we saw two copies of Mono Green, two copies of Gruel Boats, one Creativity, which was the Worm Xenagos version, two copies of Rakdos, and one copy of Demir Rogues, which is another deck that's kind of been um, nibbling away at the edge of the metagame. And then the other challenge, top eight, was made up of one Lotus Field, one Creativity, and this one was the Gearhulk version, uh, two copies of Rakdos again, two copies of Grease Fang, and one copy of Gruel. And I think these challenge results, not only these ones, but if you're looking back um, at any of the challenge results lately, you you just see a very diverse uh, metagame and diverse top aids. Obviously, you still get... Um, some of the big players that are common, uh, Rakdos and Mono Green tend to be pretty popular, um, but these top eights are diverse, and I think they show that that you can win um, with several different strategies. Right. I think that Rakdos and Mono Green also tend to be a lot more popular online than they do in person, yeah. um, and that's just my feeling. Um, maybe that's just the case that people who grind Magic Online um, have played these decks forever because they've been near the top for a while. And so they've gotten really used to it, but I tend to see a lot of these decks online. And, and so I wonder if the trend will continue for in-person regionals and, um, upcoming events, or if people will play their own strategies a lot more frequently. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see. And one other thing I am looking forward to watching is with this RCQ season being, um, devoted to pioneer versus, uh, a hodgepodge of a bunch of different formats, uh, just the results and how the metagame continues to adapt, how players are innovating throughout the RCQ season. Um, we're going to have a good couple months coming up of results to keep an eye on. We're also going to have uh, the RC in Dallas, which is Pioneer. So that'll also be interesting to see what innovation we find there. Um, but before we wrap up, Nathan, any closing thoughts on Pioneer, the format, um, what players should know for these upcoming RCQs? No, I think we did a really good recap of what are the decks in Pioneer? What do you need to know if you haven't played much Pioneer recently to be caught up to speed? And if you were to play a deck, why should you play that deck? I know I spent a good bit of time kind of dissecting and maybe being a little harsh on some of the weaker decks in Pioneer. And I think there's good reason there, which is it is really easy to see one of these top 15 decks and be like, oh, well, that's like a a totally good option. Like this deck looks cool and good, but you do have to recognize that there are reasons why some of these decks are less popular. You can ultimately win with any deck in Pioneer, but the top five or six are a lot stronger, I would say, um, on power level reasons. So you have to know, are you making a metagame pick or are you making a deck uh, selection choice just based on, oh, I think this deck gives me the best chance of winning a tournament this weekend. So, Yep, really good points. Um, 
And that's all I had to add as well. So um, thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode of The Bolt Zone. Hopefully you are feeling more prepared for your Pioneer RCQs and are going to go out there and get some results. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. Um, If you want to help support the show, again, consider subscribing to our Patreon. Um, You can find the link for that in the show notes. Uh, And if you do subscribe, you'll get a shout out in the next episode. Um, Thank you again to Boogie Board for their sponsorship. And until next time, get out there and sling some spells. Thank you.